You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Colossians. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17 this morning. So let's read, read our text. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And Father, this morning, we come before You, God, we come before Your Word, and Lord, we're desperate to hear from You. God, we so long to hear Your voice. God, not my voice, but your voice. God, we want to have you speak directly to us this morning, right where we're at, God. If we need to be encouraged, God, encourage our hearts. Lord, if we need to be challenged or convicted, God, do that work. God, you are the great I am, the becoming one. And Lord, I pray this morning you would come and become to us whatever it is that we need this morning. God, we're desperate for you. And we need you. And we recognize that. That Lord, without you being here and speaking to us, Holy Spirit, we are absolutely wasting our time. And we recognize that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, the theme of this book has been the preeminence of Christ. And that sort of has been the overarching thought and concept that Paul has in mind as he writes these things, that Jesus would be preeminent, that we would understand that we are complete in Christ. And in this section, Paul has been talking about the practical outworking of that preeminence in our life, the, the holiness, the, the sanctification that should spill forth and be a byproduct of the preeminence of Jesus Christ in your life. In other words, if we aren't living a life with these characteristics of putting off the old man and putting on the new man, then it kind of demonstrates to us that Jesus isn't preeminent in our life, that He isn't the center, as we sang this morning. And he's been using this picture, Paul has, of putting off the old man. And putting on the new, in fact, in verses 5 and 8 of our text last week, in chapter 3, he says, Put to death the members which are on the earth, these fleshly things, the fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. He says in verse 8, But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Put off these things. And the picture is taking off dirty clothes. 
And he says that we need to put those off, take those off before we can put on Christ. And the picture is clear that if you have filthy clothes on, if you've been working all day and, and you're sweaty and you're dirty, you don't come home and, and put on clean clothes over the top of those. If your child comes in after playing outside and is filthy dirty, you don't just put clean clothes on over the top. You take the dirty off and put clean on. And that's the concept that Paul has in mind here. As he tells us in verse 10, put on the new man. And now he says in our text, as the elect of God, therefore, in light of this, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. And he'll go on to describe what it is that we need to put on. As the elect of God, as those that have been chosen by God, have been called from the very foundations of the world, the Bible teaches us. We've been called by God. We've been elected by God. We didn't come to Him because we were righteous, because we had it all together. He didn't somehow look forward into eternity and know who would choose Him, and then that's who He chose. That weakens the sovereignty of God. He chose us arbitrarily out of His sovereignty. The Bible teaches us that. The Bible also teaches us that we chose Him. It's not my place to reconcile those two, just to simply teach what the Bible teaches. As the elect of God, as those that have been called and chosen by God, we have a high calling as children of God who are, notice this, who are holy and beloved, who already are holy and beloved, who already are sanctified, and set apart. That's so important that we understand that as we talk about holiness, as we talk about putting on Christ, as we talk about these virtues that so often we are left thinking that it's about us, that we've got to do this, when in fact he tells us here that we already are holy and beloved by God. It's why Paul could tell the church at Corinth that they were saints that they are holy, and then go on to describe all sorts of madness and sin that was going on in the church. It ought to encourage us. Paul says, hey, church of Corinth, you are saints, and then goes on to describe all the sin. Now, that's not an excuse for sin in any way, shape, or form, but know this, if you are a Christian here this morning, you already are holy. And now the, the sanctification, the virtues, the godly characteristics that we're going to talk about this morning, they are a byproduct of that position that you already have in Jesus. And until you understand who you are in Christ, you will never have these characteristics consistently because they don't come from us. They come from Him. And so He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on, clothe yourself with these things. And the idea of clothing yourself is the, the first of two main points that I want us to notice. We're going to talk about clothing ourselves. We're going to talk about surrendering ourselves. The first point, to clothe yourself. He says, put on, first of all, tender mercies. A heart of compassion is basically what the idea is here. Having a heart of compassion. Something that is not real common in our day and age. Caring about people. Having a heart for people. H having a soft heart 
for people. A tender heart. It's not common. Sadly, it isn't common even in the church. Does our heart break for people? Does your heart break for the lost? Does your heart break for those that are going through difficult times? Or do you just think about yourself? Tender mercies. We need to literally put this on. It's a command. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. Put on tender mercies, a heart of compassion, sensitivity to others, kindness, he says. This is a word that was used to describe wine that over time had lost its harshness. Kindness. As we walk with Jesus, we should lose our harshness. For some of us, we are kind by nature and it comes easier to you. For others of us, we aren't so kind by nature. We're a little bit harsh. We're a little bit gruff. We're a little bit rough around the edges. And Jesus wants us to put on kindness. To literally put it on. It's the same word that Jesus used to describe himself when he said, My yoke is easy. Kind. That it's not harsh, that it's not heavy, that it's not burdensome. That his yoke is easy. He says humility. Put on humility. Another thing that does not come natural to us. Another thing that is lacking in our culture and in our society. And it was very much lacking in this society that was dominated by Greek culture. The Greeks, in fact, disdained humility. It was not a virtue. It was weakness. And even in our culture today, humility can be seen as weakness. But it's a strength. It's a virtue. It's something that Jesus demonstrated time and time again in his life. It's a deep sense of one's moral littleness. That's what humility is. That's really where humility is based. People that are prideful do not see themselves in the light of God's holiness. People that are prideful are comparing themselves to others and not to God. Because when I see myself in the light of God, there's no room for pride. It brings me to my knees in absolute and utter repentance and confession and recognition of how little I am. Humility. It's lowliness of mind. Not thinking that you're better than others. Because we don't compare ourselves to others, we compare ourselves to Jesus. Carson's playing soccer right now, my three-year-old son. And at that age, they, they play indoors and it's, it's in the gym. And, you know, they, they pretty much just mandate what happens. They, they tell, okay, you're going to score, you know, th- this is your turn to score, you know, and everybody gets a turn. And, and so he, he really likes the opportunity to score. And he notices that when he scores, everybody claps, you know. And the other day, Caitlin brought her pom-poms, but then she was too scared and too embarrassed to use them, right? <laughs> so she's over there on the bleachers, and, and Carson keeps yelling in the middle of the game, Caitlin, cheer for me. And she's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And, and the parents are out there with the kids, right? And Carson at one point turns to me and said, Dad, I'm the best. I'm better than all these other kids. And I said, Carson, you know what, bud? The Bible says, let another man praise you, not your own lips. Because the fact of the matter is, he, he's quicker and more athletic than all the other kids out there. 
And he noticed that at three. Now, getting the ball and the goal, he hasn't quite figured that out yet. But he, as far as athleticism, he noticed. And he wanted the, his sister to cheer him. He wanted me to tell him he was better than all the other kids. Humility is not a virtue that is just pouring out of that little guy's life right now. It doesn't come natural. We have to put it on. And you know what? As ugly as it is to see that from a three-year-old, it's way uglier to see that from an adult, isn't it? Because we basically do the same thing. Hey, cheer for me. We want to hear the praise of men. Hey, I'm better than everybody else. Maybe we don't say it just that way, but the way we carry ourselves, the way we treat people, that's the mindset that we have. And the Lord tells us, put on humility. Meekness. This is strength under control. This is not weakness. And again, we confuse meekness for the inability to defend yourself. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, meekness is the absolute ability to do something and yet not do it. It's the ability to control your emotions. That's a very powerful person. The Proverbs tells us, that a person that can, tr- can control his emotions is more powerful than a man that rules a city. Meekness. It's an inward peace. It's gentleness. Some of your translations may say gentleness. Long-suffering. Patience. Not easily angered. Fathers, are, are you easily angered? Are you easily provoked? Mothers, are, are you easily irritated with your children? All of us, are, are, we, are we easily brought to a point where we want to strangle people? Is that, is that easy for you? Does it just take somebody cutting in front of you without using their blinker and all of a sudden you are enraged? Is it just a statement, a comment by a co-worker and it just sets you off and, and you're ready to fight? Long-suffering, not easily angered, not easily irritated or provoked. We have to put that on because you know what? My sin nature is easily angered. It's easily provoked. It wants to fight. It wants to defend. It doesn't want to put up with people at all. And he goes on to describe long-suffering. This long-suffering that we are to put on in verse 13. I think because it's so important that he, he describes it more clearly. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now, I know that here at Calvary Chapel, none of us have a complaint against another, right? We don't, we don't have anything that irritates or bugs us or that we want to complain about. No, we know that isn't true. We got lots of stuff that we want to complain about that irritates us, that provokes us. And what does Paul tell us here? Bear with one another. In other words, there's times where you just need to forget about it. You just need to let it roll off your back. Choose your battles, husbands and wives. Bear with one another. There's times where you don't need to say anything. Just let it go. Bear with one another. That's part of long-suffering. Just, just saying, you know what? It's not worth it. I want to defend myself. I really do. I, I want to say something. I, I want to I come back with, with a barb, with a little attack. But just let it go. Bear with one another. He also says to forgive one another. And so this is when it's something that you really can't just let go, that you just don't pass off. The Bible talks about if you have a grievance against someone, that you go to that person and you deal with it. 
And so there are times where you go to a person and you say, you know what, this thing that you said, it really hurt me. This thing that you did, but I, I forgive you. See, that, that's the key, is forgiveness, is letting it go. And people in the church will say, yeah, you, you just need to forgive, but you don't have to forget. Really? Is that biblical? You, you just forgive, but you don't have to forget. In other words, you can keep thinking about it and dwelling upon it and bringing it up. No, that's not biblical at all. Because the Bible tells us that God doesn't hold any wrongs against us. The Bible tells us that love bears no record of wrongs. The Bible tells us, you guys, that God forgets our sin. And He's all-knowing. He doesn't forget anything. And so, if He chooses, and that's what He does, it isn't like He just has a poor memory. He chooses to forget those things, to put them away. And that's what you have to do. You have to choose to not hold that thing over a person's head. Now, does that mean that you're not going to be cognizant of what happened? We are going to know about it. We're going to remember it. But it means that we don't use it against the person. It means we don't bring it up. It means we don't gossip about it. Yeah, well, you know what that guy said to me a year ago? And oftentimes we do that. We, we've said we forgive the person. We said, yeah, it's cool, bro. It's all, it's all good. No worries. But then we go and, yeah, you know what she did to me a year ago? I, I thought that was forgiven. Apparently it isn't. And so forgiveness is huge. But see, here's the thing is that I could just tell you, you need to forgive. In fact, studies show that forgiveness is good for your health. That bitterness and holding on to resentment actually causes heart failure and cancer and, and other conditions. Maybe that's why they're rampant in our world. Because so many people do have unforgiveness and bitterness. And I mean, it comes out. You talk to somebody. And man, they're just mean. Well, that didn't happen overnight. It happened with layer upon layer of unforgiveness and bitterness that's just rooted in their life. And now they're miserable. And so it does affect you. And it is good for you to forgive. And I could just say that from a very practical standpoint but here's the thing you guys there's there's a a christian aspect to this that's attached that's the motive and the ground and the example for this that that paul says even as christ forgave you see he's our example that's the motivation that's what the world doesn't have see you can hear about forgiveness on talk shows and a psychologist will tell you that it's good for you to do. But as Christians, there, there is something more to this. We have an example of why we forgive and how we are to forgive. It's Jesus in the cross. Listen to this story. John Perkins tells how he was beaten in Mississippi in a jail, being repeatedly kicked and stomped on as he lay in a fetal position protecting himself. The beating went on and on as he writhed, in a pool of his own blood, while drunk officers took turns using their feet and weapons. At one point, an officer took an unloaded pistol, put it to Perkins' head, and pulled the trigger. Then another, bigger man, beat him until he was unconscious. As the night wore on, it got worse. During a conscious period, one officer pushed a fork down his throat. It was a, a barbarous torture, a great reason to hate. But this is what happened 
as John Perkins tells it. The Spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed. An image formed in my mind, the image of the cross and Jesus on the cross. It blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and he cared because he had experienced it all himself. This Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he preached, yet he was arrested and falsely accused. Like me, he went through an unjust trial. He also faced a lynch mob and got beaten. But even more than that, he was nailed to a rough wooden cross and killed. Killed like a common criminal. At the crucial moment, it seemed to Jesus that even God himself had deserted him. The suffering was so great, he cried out in agony. He was dying. But when he looked at that mob who had lynched him, he didn't hate them. He loved them. He forgave them. And he prayed God to forgive them. Father, forgive these people, for they don't know what they are doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. I couldn't get away from that. It's a profound, mysterious truth. Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see its victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me. On that bed, full of bruises and stitches, God made it true in me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with a love for the white man in rural Mississippi. I felt strong again, stronger than ever. What doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. I know it's true because it happened to me. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It is not enough to put up with each other, to refuse retaliation. We must truly forgive. And if we struggle with this, we must, as John Perkins, recall the immense forgiveness of Christ. That's, that's our example, you guys. That's what we look to. If, if you've been wronged, if you've been hurt, if you've been abused, you have to forgive. This is a command from the living God. That if you do not forgive, you are in rebellion to God. And no matter what you do, your life will not be right until you forgive. And there aren't conditions on this. It doesn't say, well, if you were sexually abused by your father, then you don't have to forgive. It doesn't say that. If you were abandoned by your parents, then you don't have to forgive. It doesn't say that. Now, it doesn't minimize what happened to you. It's not minimize the hurt and the pain that you feel. But until you give that to Jesus, until you see Him on the cross and what happened to Him, and that He forgave you, and you allow Him to work that forgiveness into your own life so that you can forgive, until that happens, you are in rebellion to God. That's what you need to understand here. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And so He describes long-suffering. And how it should look in our life. And then he says, But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Above all these things, literally upon all of these things. So you're, you're putting on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And then Paul says, and put over that love. Because that is going to be the thing that ties everything else together. That without love, all those other things are empty. It's literally the belt that binds all of these virtues together and makes them perfect and complete. Put on love. We have to put it on on a daily basis. When you get up in the morning, you guys, you have to cognizantly 
remind yourself that you need to put off the old man and put on the new. That's what he's wanting us to understand. And all of these virtues that we're commanded to put on must be exercised and worked out in the community of others. They, they have to be worked out in the community of other people. Wouldn't it be easier to just do these things by yourself? To have tender mercies just in your own little life. To have a heart for yourself. To be kind, but you don't really ever have to show that to anybody else. To have humility, but never have to display that in the community of other people. To be meek, to be long-suffering. Wouldn't it be easier to do that in isolation? You wouldn't have to put up with people. But the concept here is that this is done in the community of others. That each one of these virtues that we are to put on has to do with other people. A significant measure of your Christian life is found in how you treat other people. Think about that. A significant measure of your Christian life is found in how you treat others. And so begin to think about how you treat people. And it will give you a real good idea of where you're at with Jesus and whether or not he's preeminent in your life. And so we've seen this concept of clothing yourself. He also tells us to surrender ourselves, verses 15 to 17. And it's, it's born out of this phrase, let, this word let. He says, verse 15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. And so the first thing that we are to surrender to is the peace of God. Let it rule. This is something that you allow, but that you don't do. You allow it to happen, but you're not actually the one that's accomplishing the action. You have to allow it. You have to surrender to the peace of God. And he says, let it rule, literally umpire. Let it umpire your life. You're familiar with, with umpires in baseball. They, they make the calls. And a good umpire, he is in complete control of the game. And he doesn't let the players or the fans or the coaches affect him in any way, shape, or form. He rules the game. And if he gets chastised by the crowd, if a coach gets in his face, if a player gives him lip, it doesn't change him at all. He's in control. He's ruling the game. And there's a peace about him. And at times when you've seen an umpire lose it, then he's lost the game. He's no longer in control. And that's the idea here is that we would allow and let the peace of God. We already have peace with God. That's a position that we have in Christ. We're not enemies of God any longer. But now we allow the, the peace of God to rule our lives, to umpire our lives, to make decisions for us. This is a great verse for determining the will of God. People often will ask, you know, what should I do? What decision should I make? And here's a great answer. Let the peace of God umpire your life. Every decision that I've ever made that was against the peace of God, that was against the peace that I had in my heart, and you know what I mean. When you just, you know that it's probably not the best thing to do. Maybe it's a purchase. You're going to purchase this vehicle and you're thinking, oh man, there's just something in your heart that's telling you you probably shouldn't do it, but you do it anyway because you want it. Every time I've done that, it's been a bad decision. And so I would say this, never go against your peace. 
Never go against that peace in your heart. Let it rule you and guide you and umpire your life. It's the way in which God leads us into those decisions that He wants us to make. Let it rule you. Surrender to it. Surrender to the peace of God. Not to the chaos of this world, you guys. Not to the whims of people. Not to the latest and greatest thing that everybody says you need to be a part of. Not to the the worries. What's everybody saying right now? The world is falling apart. The economy is absolutely atrocious and we're all going to starve to death and we're all going to end up dead in a year. I mean, that, that's kind of, you know, that's his, gas is going to be $100 a gallon. And hey, even if all of those things are true, you can't let that dictate and guide your life. Let the peace of God rule you. Not what people are saying. Not the economic forecast. Not the presidential election. Let the peace of God rule your life. Surrender to the peace of God. He goes on to say that this peace should be borne out in the body as well. To which also you were called in one body. And I, I think that the idea is that there is peace in the community of believers. That when you're isolated... That there's more of a tendency for you to become paranoid and worried and freaked out and running to and fro trying to latch on to the whims of men. We need each other. And there's a great move right now that in the church that basically says you don't need to go to church. You, you don't need to be involved in a church. Now, you don't need to be involved maybe in a traditional church. That it doesn't have to meet in a building or have some of the traditional things that the American church has. But you need to be involved in a community of believers. Paul makes that very clear here. With a leadership structure. That's another thing that's huge in the Northwest. Just get together in a house and whoever has a word and whoever wants to blab on about whatever, let them do it. Is that biblical? There's nothing biblical about that. It sounds cool. It sounds you know, anti-authoritarian because we hate authority and it goes back to our pride. The Bible says that there's a leadership structure. Now, how that's borne out and, and what it looks like and as far as where you meet and what kind of worship you have and what kind of ministries. But there is a pastor, there are elders, there are deacons. It's biblical, it's right, and we need each other. We need to be involved in a, in a body that's healthy, that's centered on Jesus and the gospel, and that has that leadership structure in place. And there's peace in that. And he says, surrender not only to the peace of God, but to the word of God. Let the word of Christ, and he uses the word Christ or Jesus here, because that's what Colossians is all about. But you could easily say the word of God. Let the word of Christ, the word of God, dwell in you richly, in all wisdom. Surrender to God's word. Let it. Notice It's something you allow, but it happens to you. Let it. Let God's word dwell in you or make its home in you richly, abundantly. How does this happen? Well, I think it happens personally and corporately. Personally, it happens as you read the word, as you study the word, as you memorize the word, as you meditate upon the word. If you are looking for this to be your all in all, in terms of your intake of the Word of God, then you will not be allowing the Word to dwell in you richly, 
abundantly, consistently. You have to, you guys, do this on your own. You have to be in the Word consistently. Pray for God to give you a hunger for His Word. Do you know why it's easier to read the newspaper or a magazine than it is to read the Bible? Because it's a spiritual attack. And you've got to fight against it. You have to. Otherwise, you will not be the person that God has called you to. You will not be used the way He wants to use you. You will not live the way He wants you to live. All of these virtues that we talked about, you will struggle to put them on apart from the Word of God. It won't be a part of your life. And if you've noticed, man, I'm not tender-hearted. I'm not kind. I'm not humble. I'm not meek. I'm not long-suffering. I I would bet that you are not a person who's allowing the Word of God to dwell in you richly. Teaching, he says, and admonishing one another. So it's not only personal, it's corporate. As we are taught the Word. We need to be taught the Word. We need to hear the Word of God taught and have Him speak to our hearts. Teaching and admonishing. Teaching is instructing. Admonishing is warning, exhorting, encouraging. Something that is sorely lacking in the church. And this isn't just from the pulpit that we teach one another and that we admonish one another. This is done amongst each other. That as you're fellowshipping with one another, you can teach. You can answer people's questions. You can instruct them. You can admonish. Oh, I'm not called to do that. Well, that's not what Paul says. He says, admonishing one another. I don't want to offend. I don't want to hurt people's feelings. No, it has nothing to do with you not wanting to offend or wanting to hurt people's feelings. Because if you really cared about the person, then you would tell them the truth. The, the, the truth is that you care about yourself. And you don't want to tell them the truth because you're so self-centered and self-focused that you don't want people to think ill of you. That's what's going on. It's nothing to do with the fact that you care way too much about that person and you don't want to hurt their feelings. That's bogus. You care about yourself. And that's the bottom line. And because you care about yourself, you don't want to say anything that might make you look bad. And that's the state of the church. We don't want to offend. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. Well, look, I would much rather offend you into the kingdom than pacify and mollify you into hell. Teaching and admonishing one another with music, he says. In psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms are the word of God, particularly the psalms. But any part of the word that you can put to music. It's great when, when psalms are put to music. When the word of God is put to music. In hymns. These, this is a word that's borrowed from the military when, when a, a general would come back, they would write a song. Remember in uh, Judges chapter 5, they wrote a song about Deborah. It was a song of victory where the general was praised for his greatness. And here's the thing that defines a hymn. A hymn is a song of direct praise to God. A declaration of how great God is. And we need those songs. And there's also spiritual songs, which is a, a song that is sung about the Lord, about our Christian walk, about some attribute of God, about some response that we want to give to God, a chorus. And people have this debate about which is better, hymns or new songs. And every song today is about us. And look, you need a mix. You need a mix of songs that are about the Lord and are a declaration of His greatness 
and His amazing power and awesomeness. But we also need songs that are sung to the Lord in our response to Him. And then he concludes this section in verse 17. As he says, clothe yourself with these things. Surrender yourself to the peace of God, to the word of God. And then in conclusion, he says, and whatever you do. So whatever you do. So in case you were kind of wondering if this, you know, was, was just confined to what he talks about here. Whatever you do in word or deed. Whatever you say, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, it covers everything in life. How you respond to your spouse, how you raise your kids, your life at work, at church, on vacation, recreation, whatever you do. Whatever you say, whatever you do, let it be to the glory of God. Let it be to the glory of God. Everything you do, that's the test, you guys, of whether or not you you are having Jesus be preeminent in your life. Is your life bringing glory to God? And notice that in this section of surrendering yourself to the Lord, three times he says, be thankful. Verse 15 and verse 16, singing with grace, being thankful to the Lord in song. And then verse 17, giving thanks to God. And this thankful attitude is one that is definitive of a person who has Jesus at the very center of their life. Being thankful to the Lord for all that He's done. Put on Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. Put on Jesus is literally what's in mind here. Put on these things. Put on Jesus on a daily basis. Take off the old man. Put on the new And surrender yourself to God so that you might glorify Him with your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means, you guys. Putting off the old, putting on the new, and having these things characterize your life. And Maybe this morning, you you need to reevaluate whether or not you're truly following Jesus. Because as you look at these things, you don't see them in your life at all. And maybe you need to get your life right with the Lord. Maybe you need to get your eyes back on Him rather than yourself. Maybe this morning you're not a Christian at all and you need Jesus. We want to pray with you in any way that you would need this morning. We're going to have people up here to pray with you. Don't be prideful. Don't let your intimidation get in the way of what God wants to do in you. You guys, it's, it's time that we begin to truly live the way that God's called us to. That we begin to treat people the way that God has called us to treat people. That we begin to have a heart for people and a love for people and that we forgive people. Maybe you've got bitterness in your life this morning. You need to deal with that. Deal with it today, not tomorrow, today. You guys, all of these things that we talked about this morning are found in Jesus. He characterizes and fulfills every one of these things. And He wants to be that for you as you make Him preeminent in your life. You can't do it on your own. You need Jesus. And if you've been trying to do it on your own, you've probably realized by now that you can't do it. You're falling on your face on a daily basis. You need Jesus. So if you need prayer, come forward for prayer and ask God to do that work in your life. Let's stand together.
You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.